name's Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy Fellowship. Where we're saved by Jesus' work. We're changed by Jesus' grace, and we're living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And, and like the biggest way that we do that, or one of the key ways we do that, is as we gather together on a Sunday morning, we sing praises to God as our Savior and King. We open up God's word, and we hope that God's story supersedes, transforms, informs our stories in ways that leads us to deeper connection with God, a greater understanding of ourselves and others, so that we can live out uh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus who loves God and who loves people. And so um, uh, all uh, winter, we've been in this series that we started a few weeks ago called The Story of Everything. And so hopefully on your way in, you've got a discipleship guide. Uh, if you don't, uh, that's great. You can grab one of those. We're going to be in week four today um, called The Story of His Family. And so by way of a quick recap, we began this series by just trying to root ourselves in, in Luke 24 where the resurrected Jesus is with a couple of disciples who are in great despair because they just saw him crucified and buried. And they don't recognize him yet. And Jesus begins to tell them that all of the Old Testament, really all of the Bible, is about him. And so when we think about who the story is all about, the story is absolutely for us, but ultimately the story is about Jesus. And so we then kind of skipped back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and saw that God is good. He made everything good. He made you and I uh, with meaning and purpose and dignity and value with, with a design and a purpose. And, and that design and purpose is to be fruitful and multiply, to go fill the earth, to go subdue the earth, that we are to, to take the life in the garden that God had planted us and then make systems and communities and societies of human flourishing where people honor God, know God, know one another, and experience joy and blessing. And maybe you're like, I, I, I don't feel like it is like that. And we're like, yeah, we, we get that. Like the Bible is actually really honest about the condition of humanity and the world we live in. So it's not just smiling, happy people, like do good, everything's going to go fine, that we actually recognize that, that while God made everything good, there was a fall. There was a rejection of God's word. There was a rejection of God's design. And a, and a new character kind of emerged in the story, Satan as a, as we said, a sneaky snake, right, coming in. And, he's, and he, what he's doing is he keeps sowing doubts about God's goodness to God's people. He begins to lie about God's character and then say there's actually no consequences for sin or rejecting God, which is just absurd because if God's the source of life and pleasure and purpose and joy, if you reject that and disconnect from God as the source of those things, you can't expect to continue with life and joy and purpose and meaning. And so sin entered the world. And it impacts you and me. It impacts our relationships with one another. It, of course, impacts our relationship with a holy and, and good God. Uh, and it even impacts our relationship with our sense of self as we become people who are no longer fully integrated uh, in the way we're designed, but we become disintegrated, and, and it leads to greater frustration. And even in the midst of that darkness, even in the midst of that, that sad uh, moment, that broken moment, there's great hope. Because God says, hey, 
I'm not done with humanity. Like, God could have just, like, like when I was about to lose at Nintendo when I was a kid, um, man, that's just like, when I dialed up the phone with a rotary, um, okay, like, when I was about to lose, I would just pull the plug, and then the game would reset. I could just start over. Uh, and my sister reminds me of that, because there was one, she's four, four years younger than me, she almost beat me at a game, and I just, like, wasn't going to let it happen. Uh, and so I just, I just pulled that plug beforehand. Um, and that's not on the notes, but it just lets you know the kind of character a young Chris Rich had. So, um, so but, but, but with that, God didn't hit reset. Instead, God doubles down and makes a promise. He gives them mercy and grace. He doesn't kill Adam and Eve right away. He actually sacrifices for them, covers them um, with, with, with um, uh, animal skins, covering their shame, like uh, giving them a, a, something durable to go engage in the world with. Um, and then he, m- most importantly, makes a promise. And the promise that God makes to Adam and Eve is that one is going to come being born of woman who the serpent is going to strike. The serpent is going to bruise his heel, it says. But ultimately, this one who will come will crush the head of the serpent. That there's this this anticipation, even in the darkest chapter of the Bible, of the hope, of the mercy, of the victory, of God's goodness over evil. And so there's this promised Savior King of God's people, this promised Messiah. And so you can, you can read more about that in, in uh, um, Genesis chapter 3, verses 15. Uh, it's called the, the, the first gospel, the proto-evangelion. And so Adam and Eve sent out from the garden, uh, and then um, we begin to see uh, if you continue on in your, in your Bibles. And today we're going to be in a few places in Genesis. Um, but what happens is, yeah, humanity does multiply. That there becomes lots of families. There becomes lots of nations. And, and, and as people multiply and spread, so does the sin and darkness. So more people, more problems right? And so it's like, oh, you just get a bunch of more sinners around. I'm sure we'll all figure it out. Maybe if we just vote the right way or spend our money the right way. No, no. No, no. It doesn't change the condition of the human heart. And so actually humanity did get so wicked that God did kind of do a wash, rinse, repeat. Big global flood. And he saves a remnant. He saves a family, a family of faith through the ark, and, and then that family then multiplies, and again, there, there's kind of, you know, nations and people start to spread again all over uh, the world, uh, and so um, the, each generation begins to ask themselves, is this the generation where that Savior is going to come? Is this, is this promised Messiah going to actually show up? And with each passing generation, the sin and brokenness gets worse. And at certain points um, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 11, all of humanity just goes full United Nations and says, you know what? If we're united, nothing can stand against us. We don't need God. We're, let's build a massive tower up to the heavens. And like any time we try to build something apart from God, it doesn't lead to flourishing. It leads to frustration. God says, no, no, you're, you're not going to prevail a 
apart from my blessing and life and mercy and grace. And so their plan is frustrated and thwarted. Um, it sends them into great confusion and greater division. And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 12. It'll also be up on the screen. But in this context of global, national, racial, language, cultural division, God is going to reaffirm in the wreckage of wicked nations, God's about to work in and through a family to bless all the nations. And that leads us to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3 says this. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Here we go. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so if you look at your Bibles, right, because you can't really see this well in the app. Okay, a lot left in the story, okay? We've only gone through this much. I want you to know that from chapters 1 to 11 in Genesis, as much time passes here as passes here. So there, there's, there's actually um, more time between Genesis chapter 1 through 11 or till 12 where we're at than there is from Genesis 11 to, to the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus and the, the church being planted that follows. And so... Um, like a lot's going on there. Uh, some pretty wild stuff happens. Um, but where the people of Babel, making that Tower of Babel, it says that their motivation was to make a name great for themselves apart from God. And they found themselves scattered as all these different people and nations opposed to God's rule, opposed to God's reign. And so you just kind of need to think about it as a pretty, let's just call it dystopian time, a lot of division, okay, a lot of war, a lot of, I don't trust you, I don't know you, okay? And in that context, God's not like, okay, let's get some sort of new UN thing going. Let's get, you know, let's do the World Economic Forum, okay? I'm about to put a tinfoil hat on. Okay, he just goes, no, no. I'm going to bless all the families of the world. And that word families means nations, ethnicities, people group. It's a very holistic word. He's like, I'm going to bless all the families in the world through a family. That part of God's big plan, part of God's big story of everything is working in and through a family as the building block of a nation that will end up blessing all the earth. And so what's interesting about that, right, is we might think like, hey, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that my family's like one of those families. And, and the, the challenge that we see is, is we believe that somehow if God's going to work in and through a family, that it's going to be like the, the, the good family. Like, did, did any of you guys growing up have the good family around you, right? Their house was always a little bit cleaner. There's always a few more snacks, or there was snacks, uh, right, at the house, right? They always got the, the video game system first, all that. Like, like, all the kids were always nice. Their fights never seemed about anything big. Okay, yeah, I mean... I, 
I, I could name names, but if they are on the podcast, you know, like there was a family that they're like, my dad like literally called the, the mom like she's perfect. That's just all how she is. Uh, and like, like but it leaves the rest of us who didn't have perfect families. And I'll just say no family's perfect, but it makes us think that somehow God's not going to use us. And yet God reaches out to Abram, to this guy who we'll later know as Abraham, and he says, you're going to be a great nation. And, and in fact, you're going to be a nation that's going to bless all the other nations of the world. He's going to be blessed to be a blessing. And so, like, I want you to know, Abraham's family, like, why did Abram get picked? I don't know. Because the reality is, his family wasn't that great. He wasn't that amazing to begin with. It wasn't like God looked around and said, this is like the best crew there is. Let's use them. No, they weren't particularly faithful either. God chose, God elected, if you will, Abram, not to display Abram's family's greatness, but to display his greatness in the fact that God can and does use imperfect families to accomplish his perfect mission. And that should give us all some hope, especially those of us who aren't from the perfect family, right? And so um, Abram is, you can read more about his story later on, but like he's a morally complex guy at best. Him and his wife, Sarah, like, I mean, they go on some pretty wild journeys at, at different points. Uh, Abram's worried that, like, um, you know, a nation's going to, like, uh, the king is going to want his wife, and he'll get killed. And so rather than, like, standing up and being like, dude, don't touch my wife, instead he goes, she's just my sister. You can have her if you want. And, and it's like, whoa, bro. Like, don't do that, guys. Don't do that. That's not going to go well for you. God had to actually speak into a dream to these pagan, wicked leaders to say, lay off that girl. That ain't your girl. That ain't your girl. And then they come back to him, and he's like, I was scared. Abram's like a lot of us, man. He's just, they're scared. He's, he, he's not perfect. And so what happens is, I don't want to paint him too negatively, because to be clear, at several key points, Abram displays like great faith, great faith in God, great faith in God's plan and his purpose and his character. And so, but what I want us to be able to do is understand that as you're reading through Old Testament narratives of what's happening, and these things, I don't want you to be like, well, that person screwed up and did this, so I should do that. Hey, this family was polygamous. We should do that. Don't do that. Because the point of all of it is to show God using imperfect people and to remind us that there's truly only one hero in the Bible, and that's Jesus Christ. And so he, uh, God, though, does make a promise to Abram. And um, in the book Drama of Scripture, a really just excellent book that helps you unpack the biblical narrative, they say six things that God's plan for in and through Abraham is shown in these verses. Number one. Abram will be made into a great nation. He's, he's going to have a legacy. His family is going to be the first family of a new people. That's number one. Number two, that he's going to be blessed. Okay, you're like, yeah, yeah, too blessed to be stressed. Like, that's great. Like, no, no, blessing. Like, I feel like we have like a really churchy version of blessing. The, the definition of to be blessed by God or to receive a blessing is God's purpose to give his people what they need to accomplish his purposes. So what that means is that God does have a plan and meaning and purpose for your life. And like at times we for sure feel inadequate for that. 
least you should if you have any ounce of humility. But we often feel ill-equipped for it. And yet, if God has a purpose and design for your life, then he has given you what you need to fulfill that purpose. And so Abraham is being blessed specifically for him to live out the calling that God has on his life. So it's not just about rims and better backsplashes in the kitchen, okay? Does anybody have rims anymore? Okay, all right. Number three. He's going to make his name great. Number three is he's going to make his name great. Not only is he going to have a legacy, not only is he going to be blessed, but he's actually going to be given honor. That he's going to have a unique role as a father to a family of faith. What a unique thing for him to get to, to have. Like there's a reason that 4,000 years uh, you know, later, we're still talking about this guy because he is a father of the faith. And then number four, to make him a blessing. So we enjoy blessing. Like, like I mean, to, to have God's favor, that's great. To have material and, and, and all sorts of other types of blessing, fantastic. But it's never meant to, be a, uh, to, to terminate on us that we are actually blessed to be a blessing to others. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy blessing. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy good things. I mean, on Friday night, we had a volunteer appreciation dinner. Let's just call it a party. It was a rager. It was a blast. If you're like, you know what? I mean, I just, I don't want to enjoy the brisket because that'll like, you know, God won't be. No, God wants you to enjoy the brisket, okay? And if you're like, wait, they had brisket at the volunteer appreciation dinner? Maybe sign up for a serve team and you can go next year. We might have hot dogs. I don't know, okay? But, but join a team, all right? But you're blessed to be a blessing to others. And then number five, to bless those who bless them and curse or judge those who harm him. And you're like, hold up, God's judgment? Like, God's gonna curse some people? Like, that seems mean. Well, what he's saying in cursing or judging is God's judgment for his people is what happens when they reject or rebel God's word or purposes. And so it's just getting back to the simple process or simple understanding that sin hurts and sin has consequences. So it's not, don't think like voodoo hex on your house, but just understand that what he's saying here is Abram, I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to judge those who harm you. What is God saying? I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to protect you. And that when you fall out of line or walk away from the will of God, that there's consequences for that. And then number six, ultimately that all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through him. I mean, when we talk about family of faith, what we're actually saying is he will have a global an eternal legacy. That, that's fantastic. And so if, if you read these verses or skim over them again, you'll see that five times there's the word bless or blessing in them. And, and some theologians in, in my homework, they, they believe that, that it's to contrast the fact that God actually did place five different curses or use the word curse five times in those first 11 chapters. So here we are in chapter uh, 12, five times God has, has said there's some sort of judgment or curse. Um, and, and so that goes back to uh, loss of freedom, alienation from the garden, estrangement from each other, moral decay, and spiritual decay at different points. And so what's like, oh, cool, the numbers add up. You're just nerding out on me. No, what, what I believe it shows us 
is that God is actively and comprehensively undoing the result of the fall and sin. Then when God redeems, when God saves, it is holistic. It is complete that he's going to undo all of the wrong, all of the sin, all of the brokenness that we have and that we bring to the table. And so all the nations, families, people are going to be blessed. And how you can see how Abraham responds, or Abram responds rather, is you continue to read on and you'll see that he does in fact go. What is missing from these first five verses, he doesn't say where to go. He just says, you're going to go. That sometimes when God calls you or places a call in your life or is telling you to, to leave what you have and go another direction, you don't always get to know every step of the way. He's just saying, where you're at's not going to work. Because where Abram was at was in one of those wicked nations with some of those wicked people. And God's saying, you're going to have to disconnect or, or differentiate yourself from your family of origin because I've got a new family of destiny for you. That's a difficult call. Sometimes we just love what's familiar. And he's saying, no, no, a step of faith is going to be stepping away at times from what is familiar to lead you into what God is calling you to do. So we lose hope and we lose the ability to dream. We get stuck. And God's calling us to bold next steps of faithfulness. And to be clear, he does promise fruitfulness for Abraham, right? He says, you're going like, to be a nation that blesses everybody. We, we can know that, that in Christ, our, our destiny is one of eternal fruitfulness. And so he's going to go, leave his family, leave his land, leave all that is familiar for the purpose of founding what is eventually, we'll see, is going to become a whole new nation. And so, like, they're going to be given a promised land. In fact, Abram's going to get to see the promised land, but he's not going to get to dwell there. And so that's a good word for us that needs to recognize that our legacies that we participate in in our families and that we leave our families, we might not always get to see or experience the final destination that God has for his people or rather for our families. And so he promises him a heritage, multiple offspring, uh, and, and maybe you're like, cool, I bet he talked to Abram when he was like in his early 20s and him and Sarah just meeting and getting ready to start a family. No, he was about 75 years old at this point. They didn't have any kids. They were married. We don't know how long, but long enough to know kids just aren't in the cards for us. It's okay. We got a family. And God's like, leave that family. Leave that legacy. I'm going to start a new legacy of faith with you. And they're like, but we're, I mean, we're 75 like, I mean, there's commercials about us and, you know, like getting into the homes and stuff. Like, I guess 75 is young if you're running for president. Okay, sorry. I can say that because they're both old, okay? Anyway, all right. So God still works with 75-year-olds apparently. Okay, so but he, he promises that we are way off track. Jesus and politics coming in October, okay? Um, so, but, but this, is what, this is what he does. He says, hey, I'm calling you now. Like, nothing about this looks like nation building, and so he sends them uh, away, and, and finally, 
as he goes, not knowing where God is leading, they go through all sorts of, I mean, really crazy things happen. Uh, man, he's got, I mean, he's got a crazy cousin, a lot, who gets into all sorts of trouble. Like, it is just a mess. It is a mess, the journey that they go on. And finally, when he's 99 years old, like an angel of the Lord comes back and tells him and his wife, Sarah, I haven't forgotten you. Like, I don't know, it's been 24 years. Like, no, I haven't forgotten you. I promised you, you'll have a legacy. I promised you, a nation will come from you. You're going to have a son. And he's going to be the one that continues this line. He's not going to be the Savior, but he's going to be the one that this line is going to continue through. And Sarah, at this point, she's like, I'm 99. And then she goes, and my guy's old too, you know? And, and, and he's probably like looking at her like, come on, babe, let's go. And she's like, no, this isn't happening anymore, right? And miracle of miracles, a year later, Isaac is born, their son, Isaac. And, and, and they're like, okay, wow, God's being faithful to his promises. I'm sure everything from here is just going to be up and to the right. Like, things got to be getting better. Like, this is going to be awesome. All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. I mean, surely they're going to have a bunch more kids. Everything's going to be awesome. This is going to go so great. Genesis chapter 22. First section is God's promise of salvation renewed. Here we are in part two, providence of sacrifice. Uh, If you've got a Bible, your heading says, sacrifice of Isaac. That sounds horrifying. Well, we'll see. Let's go. I'm going to start with verses one through eight. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... He said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place to which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, or it can also translate young man, okay? I and the boy or young man will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father? And he said, I'm here, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Let's just stop here for a second. So God's made this promise you're going to have a nation. You're going to have a son. They wait till 100 years. Have the son. The son at this point could be, you know, late, early teens. Like, could be early 20s. Like, says boy or young man. So they're waiting another decade plus. And God comes back to Abraham and says, your one and only son, I'm calling him as a sacrifice. I wrote my notes in all caps. Are you kidding me? Like, like, what do you mean, God? Like, we're supposed to be a great nation. What does Abraham do? He sucks it up. God's made this promise 
to Abraham to establish this nation. He's made a covenant with him. You could see other times in Genesis. He's ratified this covenant a few different times. And so, so like, to be really, really clear, it's not like Abraham's like, oh, yeah, I guess you meant, like, metaphorically. Like, I'd be like an evangelist or something. Like, God's been super, super clear that through this bloodline, through this family tree, is where the Savior King of God's people is going to come from. And so they've waited. He's a grown boy, young man now, uh, and he has to sacrifice him. And, and, I mean, gosh, how much is he doubting God's promises at this point? How, how can Abraham be a father to a nation if he doesn't even have a, a son? And so um, they're going to have to go through all of this waiting again? I mean, maybe that's in his head. He's like, well, I mean, he said Isaac, but maybe he means a different kid. Maybe we'll just wash, rinse, repeat, and do that cycle over. Man, this is just, this is a very difficult and, and, and painful thing to see in the Bible. But it, it's here, I do believe, ultimately, to give us good news. Because while I said, while not perfect, Abraham at key moments has demonstrated great faith in God. He's great faith in God, meaning God's character, God's nature. Like so many times in this journey, Abraham's been the one that screwed up and God has remained faithful to his promises. Through these couple decades of Abraham walking imperfectly but still faithful, he's seen God be proved over and over and over to be faithful to his promises. So he trusts in God's goodness. And to be clear, this is still a big ask. This is still a huge Step of faith. The, um, the theologians at the Bible Project point out that there's some clues in the text that suggest that maybe Abraham didn't think Isaac was going to die. And you can see those in verse 5. He tells the young men him and the boy would return. I mean, yeah, I mean, he could be lying, but there's something he's displaying. He's saying, no, we're both going to come back. And then in verse 8, when, when Isaac's like, hey, what's, what's happening here? Like, I mean, He's got wood on his shoulders because, you know, his dad's a little old. Time to step it up, young man, right? And, and he's carrying it up the hill. And he just simply says, God will provide. God will provide a sacrifice. God will provide a lamb. So Abraham appears to be ready to do whatever God is calling him to do while also believing in God's goodness and grace and mercy that it will be different than what he believes is going to happen at this point. There's some tension here. Let's see how it gets resolved in verses 9 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there and and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid on him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. We can exhale, okay? So Abraham called the name of that place 
The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, and on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. In any and all situations, we should look to the Lord as our provider, as our protector, as the one to lead us. And I want to be clear that the, the Christian life, like a life of faith in Jesus, is one that includes sacrifice. It does include sacrifice, but I want to remember that everything that we have been given has been provided to us by God. And so the author of the story, God's the author of the story, he's not asking us, and he won't ask you to be the hero of your story. And he won't ask you to make the ultimate sacrifice. That God is the one who ultimately sacrifices for us. Like no amount of you sacrificing can deal with your sin. Only God can deal with our sin. Only God can provide an eternal sacrifice. And so what we are called to consistently is back to faith. Back to faith in God. The, the, the mercy and grace of God who provides for us drives us to greater faith that God, I want to be clear, He may test our faith at points, not because He's like, I, I'm going to bet they fail. Right, like, like um, I remember at the University of Washington, the, um, all of the pre-med majors, they all had to take, I think, like chemistry 101, and it was called a weed-out class. Like, like you think you want to be a doctor because you watched, you know, ER and Grey's Anatomy, but like, hey, now it's hard. And like, man, three-quarters of the kids failed. I mean, for me, like, basic freshman English was apparently a weed-out class. Failed that one big time, um, mostly because I didn't show up. Um, right, but what God's not doing when he's testing our faith, he's trying to weed you out. Find out who the good ones are. What he's doing in testing our faith is not testing the purity of your faith, but the object of your faith. Is your faith in yourself? Is your faith in your, your own religious devotion? Is your faith in your own sense of self and identity? Or is your faith in the good, loving, powerful, merciful God who made you? He wants to reorient our hearts. At one point, it says, Abraham, he's looking down at his son, and it's not until he looks away from what he would have to give up to see what God's actually provided with the ram right there. And so God's always calling us to greater faithfulness, not to display the right amount of our faith, but to reorient where our faith is placed. For Abraham, we see that he believed God could do anything, and it led him, it says here, to the fear of the Lord. Another way of saying that is the reverence of the Lord. That God's saying, I know that you respect, revere, and understand me more than anyone else. We can see a little bit of Abraham's heart in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is this section of scripture in the New Testament that is like this hall of fame of faith of all these heroes from the Old Testament. And what it serves to be is kind of like the director's commentary on a movie to let you know what the characters were thinking or, or what was in their mindset or just some extra tidbits about it. It says this in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says this. 
By faith, talking about this moment, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, it says, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's hope and faith for his son ultimately was resurrection. That we believe in a God who, yes, there's sacrifice and there's death and there's life and there's resurrection. And you're like, so what's the point of this whole, like, nasty story of a dad trying to kill his son in the Old Testament? All of this chapter is prophetic foreshadowing to what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. That, that like Abraham, God does not withhold his only son, Jesus. Like Isaac, who willingly went up with his father and willingly laid down to sacrifice. How do I say that? Well, we see that Isaac was carrying the wood. Like Abraham's 100 plus. Isaac is like much younger. Like in order for Isaac to be tied up and bound on a pile of sticks to be burned requires willingness and trust of the father. Just like Jesus in the garden says, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done that like Jesus goes up on a hill carrying the wood of the cross, Isaac is obedient to the Father carrying the wood on the cross. And to be clear, that hill that Isaac went up carrying that wood is the same hill that Jesus went up carrying the cross. Like, you're reading the story, you're watching the movie, and you see this scene, and you flash forward 2,000 years, and there's Jesus going up the same hill, and it clicks. Oh, God's going to provide a sacrifice. God's not withholding his son. Look at the willingness of the obedience of the son to the father, that God's going to provide a sacrifice for sin. We look at that same hill of Calvary, where the cross is, as a place of God providing for our sin. And like Isaac, who's freed from giving the consequences of death, giving that sacrifice, it's on that hill that God frees you and I from the sacrifice of wrath that happens for our sin. That because you and I belong up on that hill because of our sin. God says, no, no, I'm providing a spotless lamb in Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice for your sin so that you get to go free. And so in this, we see God's goodness and grace. Romans 8, 32, talking about the character of God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's a, um, there's a Danish theologian from about 150 years ago named Soren Kierkegaard, famous philosopher as well, and he says this about this moment in the Bible. Venerable Father Abraham, when you went home from Mount Moriah, 
You did not need a eulogy to comfort you for what you lost. For you gained everything and kept Isaac. Was it not so? The Lord did not take him away from you again. But you sat happily together at the dinner table in your tent as you do in the next world for all eternity. What's he talking about? He's saying after this moment of, 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 of tension and obedience and fear between a father and a son that God has answered with his perfect provision and sacrifice, I'm sure both Abraham and Isaac are exhaling a little bit. They've burnt the ram as an offering, and now they're eating it in the tent afterwards. And both of them, for different reasons, are praising God's provision and grace to them. They're sharing a meal celebrating the mercy and grace of God. And that's an echo towards what we're going to do in eternity, seated around what's called the wedding feast of the Lamb, celebrating God's goodness and grace and sacrifice to us. God continues to renew his promises and in the next few verses, he says this, 22, 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. An imperfect yet faith-fueled family is ultimately what God uses as the building block for a nation from which the Savior King of God's people will come from. I've got more, but I just want to leave us with this. Maybe today's the day that God's calling you to go, to leave something behind, to leave sin, to leave your pride, to leave your path of destruction behind, that all of the things that you've placed your faith in that aren't God, to leave those behind. Maybe he's calling you to begin or participate in a new legacy. I mean, the rest of Genesis is this story of the family. Like you imagine that after something so powerful like this, I'm sure that the Abraham-Isaac family got it all right from there. If you know your Bibles, you know that's not the case. Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau, and, and God renews his promise through Jacob. Jacob ends up having 12 sons, a few different baby mamas involved in that one, okay? Messy family. And now that one son comes, who's prideful, who's showing off, tells his brothers he has a dream about ruling over all of them, like, way to make friends and influence people, right? And like, they're like we already know your dad's favorite. He's like, why? Because I got a fancy coat? Yes, because you got a fancy coat. So what do they do? They throw him in a pit. He gets sold into slavery. They tell the dad that he's dead. What a, hor what a horrible thing for the family to do. And yet, that man Joseph goes from pit to prison 
to ultimately being the prince of Egypt to where the Pharaoh says, you are now in charge of our wicked pagan nation to help other nations make it through a worldwide famine. And in that then, Decades later, his brothers have to come hat and hand into Egypt. And when he, they do, they don't recognize him for a while, right? He's probably got the Egyptian makeup stuff going on. It's been a minute. He's not wearing the fancy coat anymore, right? And, and, and he blesses them. And, I mean, and then his, his, he says, bring my dad, bring my brother. So they bring the whole family into Egypt, this whole tribe into Egypt, and they prosper and they survive all because their brothers like wanted him dead. And so Jacob eventually dies and that's when the brothers kind of freak out because now it turns into like season five of succession, right? We're just like, uh-oh, we all want to be in charge. Wait, uh-oh, we, we, we were trying to kill him early and now that dad's gone to protect us, what is he going to do? And they're, they're terrified of, of the, that this is going to be when, when Joseph's going to show his vengeance. I think some of us think that's how God thinks about us. He's just waiting to show us some vengeance for all of our screw-ups. And what does Joseph respond with? But Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The even in a just absolute dumpster fire of a family that God uses their brokenness and their sin and continues to redeem it to provide provision and life for his people. And so I want you to know that no matter what family you've come from or what family you're a part of now, that you do not have to be defined by your family of origin, good or bad. But when your faith and trust is in Jesus, you're no longer defined by your family of origin, but you are part of a new family of destiny. That yes, God loves faithful men and faithful women and faithful kids and faithful families. And I do believe that those are the building blocks of, of faithful communities and faithful nations. And we should want those things. But let's never forget that families aren't the hero. We're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. And he's calling you today to go to repent of your current journey, not knowing what's going to be on all the journey, but, but being sure of this, that it's a destination of communion with God, joy, and with his people now and for eternity. That God has provided and blessed us and gives us honor and legacy now into eternity when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.